Welcome to Rockable Retail Podcast, Season 7, Episode 18. I'm Michael LeBlanc. And I'm Steve Dennis. In another solo episode, we have part two of our popular predictions recap format, where we take a look back at Steve's retail predictions. And like any good retailer should, grade his performance, your performance, and the actual outcome, proof points, or how far off base or how on point uh, you were. Uh, Part one was uh, popular, so we're back this week to wrap it up. Now, speaking of uh, traveling, actually, that's a rough segue. I didn't speak of traveling at all. But anyway, we're traveling (laughs) in in 2024. And of course, we're starting with uh, the big kahuna, NRF. I'm sure many folks listening to the pod will be there as well. Uh, so yeah, we've got some interviews lined up, and uh, we got a gala that we're going to on on Friday night. Tell the people about that. We're nominated for Top Retail Voice of the Year Award, along with our friends from the Retail Razor Podcast and mm-hmm. IHL. So mm-hmm. we made the best podcast. Well, I guess two of them are podcasts. Made the best voice went. or whatever voice. <laughs> yeah, is it? Well, if it's based on like best radio voice, you know, you should obviously win. But oh, well, I think you. it's a, I think it's a little oh, bit thank different, you. different thing. So, so we'll see. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Uh, well, we do have an action packed 2024 already in the books. Uh, following NRF will be, and probably many of you listening will be also be at uh, Shop Talk in Vegas. We got a lot going on there. Tell, tell the people what's going on. Yes, we'll both be there, and uh, we'll be recording some podcast episodes, most likely. Also, if you want to book us to speak at an event or sponsor our remote podcast studio, you could be joining us on the beach at the Mandalay Bay. Uh, please let us know. Contact us through social media or what have you. Also, I will be moderating a session on creating frictionless shopping experiences. That'll be day one, Sunday, March 17th. Also, we worked out with our friends at Shop Talk a special discount for podcast listeners. So you can save a little bit of money on your ticket. The details of that are in the show notes. And then also, Michael and I will be at Shop Talk Europe in Barcelona, which is in June. We've got uh, something special to announce, but you're going to have to wait until early in the new year to learn more about that. Love Barcelona. Love the idea of going back there. Didn't see enough of the city and uh, be part of it. would be my first time at, uh, you were there last year, but it'll be my first time at uh, Shop Talk Europe. So uh, very exciting. Looking forward to it. Lots of other stuff in the hopper as well. All right. Well, let's get to, um, let's get to news of the week. It's a big week in the kind of macro economics. So let's start there. Well, as I'm sure everybody who pays any attention to business knows that last week, the U.S. Fed really spurred a big rally on Wall Street because Mm -hmm. they basically signaled that they were done raising interest rates and indicated that they were getting closer to a point of being able to lower interest rates. And let's just say the markets went wild, Um, perhaps a little bit of rational, irrational exuberance, I should say, because Mm -hmm. I think there's still uh, clearly some concerns about growth and inflation. But anyway, the the sense was it was it was pretty good news overall. A bit more of a mixed picture outside of the U.S. The Bank of England and the ECB they also held rates steady, but they didn't signal anything really about near-term rate cuts. And they both spoke to concerns about inflation being too high, and that in the near term, it, inflation might actually go up a little bit. So mm. it's kind of mm. interesting the divergence of. Yeah. perspective there where the u.s is clearly in a in a much better position whereas europe and obviously some other parts of the world uh not quite 
there yet, but hopefully getting closer to to a point where interest rates may start to come back down. Um, but you know, it's going to take some lowering, some further lowering of inflation mm-hmm. for that to happen. Um, so yeah, a lot of macro news now. I'm going to just let folks know that we are going to wrap up this season next week. Bringing back the man, the myth, the legend, Ira Kalish, the chief global economist for Deloitte. Longer-term listeners will know that Ira joined us early in the year, so we're going to bookend this season with him to talk about where the economy is going. So we're going to let a real expert talk about macro, so stay tuned for that next week. Chief global economist. He is, uh, I find Ira most insightful and uh, mostly right actually like he's he's gone against the grain a couple of times but uh, i have to say if we were scoring him we'd score him i'd score him pretty high in terms of uh, his perspective on better better than my predictions people will hear (laughs) Uh, uh, let's talk about u.s monthly sales so uh, we've got this new tool we've mentioned it before nrf and cnbc uh, tool that kind of triangulates a bunch of data and uh, november sales uh, are in the books so what did you what did you think of the sales well, yeah, we've now got this uh, this uh, addition, I guess, to the information we get from the U.S. Census Bureau. And I actually think going forward, unless I find some reasons to be concerned, um, I think we'll speak to the NRF CNBC number because that comes from actual credit card data mm-hmm. as opposed to a survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just kind of interesting to compare. Uh, I'd say directionally they line up, but there's some differences if you go beneath the surface. But in any event, the headline was that November sales were surprisingly strong. Um, you know, probably a point or two above where most people thought the year-over-year numbers were going to come in in aggregate. If you go down below into the category level, seven out of the nine retail categories that get measured saw increases, very strong increases, um, almost kind of unbelievable increases in online. That was up over 26%. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Health and personal care continues to be one of the strongest categories. There was up about 9%. Then as you kind of go down through the list, um, clothing, grocery, you know, more or less kind of on trend. The laggards continue to be electronics and appliance stores, Mm -hmm. home-related categories, furniture, that kind of stuff. Though their percentage, I mean, they were basically flat or down a little bit, but that's actually better than it's been the rest of the year. So maybe the tide is turning here. The one category, and I feel, well, we'll get we'll get to this in a second, but I keep mm-hmm. just sort of harping on, is how weak department stores continue to be. Both the NRF numbers and the U.S. Census Bureau numbers showed the aggregate sales in department stores. I think numbers that you know vary slightly, but you know five or six percent down. So that's that's pretty much the weakest category among the major major ones. So. I don't know if this bodes well uh, or better than folks were thinking about for the holiday, but certainly strong December. And um, we've seen some reports that the kind of lull that we typically get in the first half of December is not so lullish, if that's Mm. a number. So, yeah, it might, uh, might be more than coal in our stocking once we get through the next few weeks. Well, speaking of department stores and, um, Geez, I don't want to say weak performance, but speaking of department stores, uh, the big news in our industry was the bid for Macy's, uh, putting both a price tag at it and taking a run at at Macy's. What do you uh, what do you make of all this? So, what do you think of the price? What do you think of the offer? And what do you think yeah. of the uh, the value proposition here? Well, first of all, that was a much better segue than the one you started with at the top of the show. So, so good <laughs> on you there. Well done. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Thank you. yeah. Macy's got a. Uh, 
a surprise bid, I guess, from uh, Arkmore and Brigade to real estate investment firms, I guess you'd say. And this caused the Macy's stock to pop. First of all, I think there's no chance that the Macy's board is going to accept this offer. That was uh, at 5.8 5.6, billion? 5.8 billion. A lot of people, and I'll come back to this in a second, but a lot of people who know more about this than I do for sure believe that just the Macy's real estate is worth quite a bit more than that. Mm-hmm. So unless you uh, value the, the operating business at significant negative, mm-hmm. you know the numbers just don't add up. So mm-hmm. I would expect uh, just for that basis, they're going to turn the offer down. You know, the offer will probably get sweetened. Um, so you know, we'll see how this plays out. But I certainly don't think the current bid is, is likely mm. to go through anywhere close to the amount that's that's been offered. That's that's definitely a low ball bid. You know, when I step back, um, you know, there's not, as you know, there's not a great history mm-hmm. with department stores or any kind of retailer being acquired by real estate firms, you know, this idea that kind of uh, some of the parts, you know, don't add up and that you can spin out yeah. various real estate what assets. What do they call it? Un- unlock the value yes, or whatever? Un- they- unlock the value. Now, yeah, yeah. Macy's for sure, and I was just having, a, I've been having some conversations with people that understand the real estate business better than I do, uh, which is not super hard. Uh, <laughs> you know, there is a belief that there is lots, because Macy's does own quite a few of its locations Mm -hmm. and some very prominent ones from Herald Square to Mm -hmm. to plenty of other locations that are, in theory, quite valuable. So this idea... Doesn't that assume... I always wonder and I hear that because it assumes that someone would want that space, a big space like that. Like, who goes in there? Like, the the money's gone from WeWork, the easy money. Remember, who was it? um, Hudson's Bay and and their Lord and Taylor. They sold it for like almost a billion dollars, but I don't think anybody get pay that today. Do we, do we think that? Well, you're asking a great question. So here's, here's uh, the dilemma and I'll try to simplify this cause we could really get in into the weeds. But when you think about the value of Macy's and its real estate holdings, you know, one question is, are you valuing, valuing it under the assumption that Macy's is going to be the tenant that's no, going to continue okay. paying yeah. rent? Can't, you know, rent. Right, right, right. right. And mm-hmm. part of the way, one way to unlock the value is to do these sale leaseback arrangements, which would get cash out. But then, presumably, Macy's is going to have to start to pay some rent. And for the most part, and this is a whole other thing we should talk about someday, but one of the reasons why department stores don't go out of business more quickly is they generally don't pay any rent. Right. So, right. so an investor is going to want to get a return on mm-hmm. that real estate property. So now if Macy's, which you know barely breaks even on a cash flow basis, suddenly has to start paying a significant amount of rent, uh, you know, that really calls into question the value equation here, unless you have a belief that Macy's is really going to turn around and start generating a lot more cash than they have historically. I think that is a big leap. So you get to this weird perspective. It's like if you well, you're valuing it because you think it's going to be an ongoing retailer. And able to service the debt or service these rental payments, what's the strategy to really be able to support that cash flow? If you're buying it, you know, another way of looking at it is you basically intend to liquidate the company over time because you're going to sell off the valuable real estate and you're going to starve the retail business. Now, this is what's largely happened in these retail real estate transactions, whether we're talking about Sears 
or, you know, a bunch of other deals that have been done, Lord and Taylor, you know, et cetera. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I would say that if Nate Macy's gets taken over by a real estate company, which is very unlikely to bring any real strategic insight and is very unlikely to invest a lot of money in revitalizing the retail assets, it's basically the nail in the coffin for Macy's. It just will take years, mm. uh, as it has in these other situations, for that to go bad. I, so I have a hard time seeing how this is in the interest of Macy's the brand. Mm. You know, It may be that Macy's is never going to be more valuable than getting you know, $6, yep. $7 billion payment today. And the yeah. smart thing for the shareholders what did you call is that bird in the hand the today. Take the, yeah, yeah, bird in the like, hand, take the money. I think never, never a, yeah. yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's a uh, objective perspective that you know that this is peak value for Macy's because it's never going to turn itself around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's you know obviously a very pessimistic yeah. outlook. So it's uh, it's interesting to see. But yeah, I would not be excited about uh, Macy's prospect if uh, if a deal like generally is is proposed uh, happens, whatever the price, uh, because the main thing we know is that that's going to add a lot of debt. Um, to the company. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, there is something to get excited about. Look at my segues. Now I'm, I'm really improving on the go here. Um, a new ICSC report about a halo effect with brick and mortar store openings. Uh, talk about that. Well, the ICSC has been doing these halo effect studies for several years. Now, um, I have been talking without using that name about this idea that one of the things that people have misunderstood over the years is that when an online business opens a store, it actually helps their, you know, brick and mortar location actually helps their online sales, which is of course, one of the reasons now over time, the digitally native vertical brands have made store openings such a priority. And then the flip side of that for some of these legacy retailers that have been closing a lot of stores, I'm like, okay, well you may need to close stores, but understand you're not going to pick it up online. In fact, you're likely to see your e-commerce business actually go down People aren't when thinking you vacate anymore. Yeah. a trade area. So I intuitively believe that was true. And from a couple of clients I've worked with and working at a couple retailers, that was my experience with a small sample. ICSC several years ago did their first halo effect report where they actually looked at a much bigger sample than I had access to. And they found that absolutely to be the case. They've now updated it with a new report, and which continues to show that this is this is true. So uh, the high-level conclusion was that brick-and-mortar store openings increase online sales in the same trade area by about 7%. Hmm. And on average, store closures result in an 11.5% drop in online sales. So one of, the implica- yeah. Yeah. so one of the implications is if you're online only, you know, like say, you know, originally a Warby mm-hmm. Parker or whatever, mm-hmm. not surprising that you may get positive economics from opening brick and mortar stores. But mm. conversely, if you're thinking about closing a store, you may you may want to be careful because that's not mm. necessarily going to be cash additive. The mm. other thing they and there's a lot of detail in the report and we can put mm. some links in the show notes. But um, these uh, two things I'll mention. One is that the categories where there is the most benefit from opening new stores are apparel, uh, department stores, home goods, and emerging DTC brands. That's not a surprise. Mm-hmm. And then conversely, when closing a location, home stores and department stores take the biggest hit. So department stores is almost 26% Wowza. negative Wowza. online sale for closing a store. Yeah. And then the last thing I lied, I'm going to mention more than two things. <laughs> I um, lied. 
which also belies sort of the common narrative is that Gen Z actually shops more in-store than any other generation, which I've heard other people say that, but it does seem counterintuitive. But, you know, sometimes facts are stubborn things. Uh, I've been a big believer in the whole Gen Z shopping in stores. I think it's a it's a, a break from social media. I mean, people, kids, you know, I guess we can call them kids now. They still want to get together, be social. I mean, we're social animals, right? And and uh, shopping has a big role to play. So. Well, you are. I'm not. But yes, in theory, <laughs> on average, people are social animals. On average. Uh, on the whole, facts are stuff and things. Um, speaking of facts, Timu, most downloaded iPhone app in the U.S. this year. I mean... Man, they're up against some big apps. I mean, if if you had to predict which would be the biggest downloaded app, it wasn't. I tell you, it wasn't on my bingo card, as they as the saying goes. That uh, these guys would. Now, you know, we talked about it last week. There's a there's a report out that the Timu business probably extracting business from the dollar stores. Does this uh, herald even more uh, challenges for um, for the domestic retailers who you know from the China factory direct model? Well, I think if you're selling very inexpensive clothing mostly and mm. you don't care about the environment, uh, you know, mm. there's that. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, the, the growth chart of Temu is staggering, even relative yeah, yeah. To, to Xi'an. Um, you know, how high is up here? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But when you yeah. see the success they've had mm. and you see the engagement that they're having, which is, mm-hmm. you know, this is one measure of it yeah. it's it's quite yeah. staggering yeah um, same you know, here by the way we, yeah. we said here it, in the u.s but it's the same exact same situation here and so it's it's not just a, a u.s phenomenon by the way if i wanted to put a surveillance device on phones in the americas this is how i would do it I <laughs> by the way not yeah. to be a conspiratorialist yeah. but uh, well you know between tamu and tiktok and you know yeah yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Well, that's another podcast. Um, now, on the other side of good, being very good, Costco earnings come out and they're doing fantastic. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I, I, I perceive that I call it cash flow shopping from consumers that there's a big segment of consumers who get value by just spending what they have week to week and they, they buy smaller units. They probably pay more per, per piece. Now, that's not, of course, the case of what happens at Costco. You buy these ginormous sizes, but you get tremendous value if you can afford it, if you got a place to store it, if you got the price points and all that thing. Their numbers were just like knock the cover off the ball, particularly their stock performance, right? Yeah. I mean, Costco for sure is, well, it's it's hard to really understate how much of a behemoth they have become Mm-hmm. During, I mean, it's been now you know more than a decade, really, because uh, they're this massive company. I think they're the third biggest retailer now in North America. They got this, you know, I think it's fifty-eight billion or something in sales from their Kirkland private brand. Like it's mm-hmm. just the numbers are incredible. So they report, report, you know, I mean, not not a blockbuster quarter from a sales standpoint, but you know, very solid four point about four percent comps. Uh, particularly strong internationally, both Canada and mm-hmm. and outside of North America, uh, increase in profits. They announced, and this just really speaks to their financial strength, their balance sheet, and just the cash flow. They announced a special dividend that they're going to pay to their shareholders. And I was just kind of curious because you know this is a fairly mature business, really, when you think about how long they've been around and all the stores they have and mm-hmm. everything. Uh, but I was just kind of curious what their performance has been like. Mm-hmm year to date and their stock is up more than 40 percent and they are worth you know we're talking about macy's Mm -hmm. you know which used to be this humongous retailer maybe getting sold for you know six seven billion dollars 
Well, Costco is almost worth three hundred billion dollars. Wow! Uh, so yeah, wow. it's just it's it's really a behemoth yeah. um, with very solid momentum. They're having, mm-hmm. a, I believe, a change in leadership yep. as well, and that kind of next generation taking yep. over. So yeah, succession stuff. Yeah, I mean, it, I think what's also impressive. I mean, we've we've had folks from uh, from Sam's on that they're a great competitor. Uh, you know, they're not. Um, you know, they're doing interesting things, and they're of course backed by the power of Walmart. So it's not like they're. It's not like they've got the market to themselves, yet they continue to outperform. They certainly have that uh, that momentum behind them. That's a real powerhouse. I suppose everybody knows that by now, but they just keep mm-hmm. putting like, you know, a cherry on top of the Sunday yeah, or whatever yeah. cliche you want to use. Yeah, we're not breaking new news here, that's for sure. But what we are here to do is uh, let's get to our part two of uh, grading your predictions. Now, we left off uh, at number, from our perspective, number seven. So our first prediction is uh to look at is trading down will define the year it's funny we were just talking about timu in our new sec segment what do you what's your observations around the trading down phenomenon this year how'd you do well i think i pretty much nailed this one though it was probably pretty easy i gave myself the a plus i mean really this was this idea uh that we were going to see a real shift in spending towards more essentials i guess <laughs> essentially mm-hmm. towards essentials mm-hmm. and but also so that's both in terms of the types of uh, formats. So mm. dollar stores doing well, off price doing well, mm. discount merchants doing well, right. Tamu, okay. Sheehan, yeah. you know, anybody who's really got this strong value equation. And if you look at the strength in those type of retailers, pretty much across the board, that's been where the strongest performance has been. And then even within retailers, the other thing we've seen is the trading down, phenomena within their assortments. Sure. So if you look at the commentary that's come out of all sorts of retailers, Walmart, et cetera, they've seen strength in the lower price points among national brands. But the particular thing I was pointing to was the strength in private brands. And one survey I saw showed that private brands share relative to the total has grown by about 130 basis points, which mm. in one year for a massive industry big move. is quite significant. And we just continue to see Target investing more heavily in private brands. I think it was Dollar General also announced a bunch of new private brands. So, and then you know, we talked just in the last part of the news segment about the strength with Costco in their Kirkland brand. So there's really a moment, I think, both for private brands relative to CPG kind of national brands, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as well as just the shift to the value end of the spectrum. Did you see the interesting article in the Wall Street Journal and it highlighted something you you would know very well which is you know at the luxury end of the segment uh you know they've all we've talked to a bunch of folks this season about how there's a lot of stores being opened by luxury brands and then they run into some challenges with inventory right because they're not going to discount that inventory and they're not going to move it anywhere else and and you know they they um are experiencing if this trading down is defining the year is is does it mean challenges at the luxury segment what do you did you see that article and and i did yeah Hmm. i think there's a bunch of things going on there. i mean i think there's definitely a pullback um from the very high-end customer in terms of spending on the most expensive stuff other than the really uber uber wealthy so i think Mm -hmm. that's that's part of it and and walmart and others have talked about how they've done better with more affluent consumers this past year than they historically had so i think we're seeing a trading down across the board. I mean, the luxury industry has got some kind of unique 
unique aspects to it that uh, make it a little bit different story. But yeah, overall, we've seen this downward migration, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. in terms of shoppers mm-hmm. to lower price points. All right. So you gave yourself, we give you an A+. Plus. Uh, all right. Number nine, uh, troubles emerge in the consumer credit market. Now, as coincidentally, uh, we are not coincidentally, we wanted to learn more. We had a, a BNPL founder on and talking about that. And I came away, f- I came away from that episode more optimistic about the that part of the business. What What did you think in the context of your prediction? Well, I did too. Uh, I would say that I didn't understand buy now, pay later as, as well as I should have when I made this prediction. Um, so there's a couple things going on here. One is, well, in terms of how I did on this, I would say not too well. Uh, I gave myself a C minus. So there's a couple things going on. One is I did think that we would see more trouble in the buy now, pay later market. And we have seen some of it. Our firm in particular has had some weak performance, has done some layoffs. Uh, but I wouldn't say that there's been a major crisis within this segment, which was something I, I uh, was part of my prediction. And then the second thing. Yeah, we, we, were, we were kind of mocking it a little bit, calling it buy now, pay l- never. <laughs> uh, well, you but, were, to be I, fair. <laughs> I was. That, that's true. But no, I, I, I thought that the, there, there was going to be yeah. an aspect of, of hitting the wall. And I think some of that was a misunderstanding. But the other thing which colors the commentary more broadly in terms of consumer credit, because not just buy now, pay later, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. other forms of consumer finance is that, uh, as we've talked about already, the year turned out to be much stronger than we expected. So, you know, we didn't have a recession. For the most part, consumers kept spending while the amount of savings, uh, particularly in the U.S., has been drawn down considerably and the amount of consumer debt has gone up. It has not really gotten yet, anyway, to a point where it's caused significant ripple effect. Now, we have seen some increases in charge-offs on the part of some banks, mm-hmm. uh, but not at an astronomical level. I noticed in Macy's earnings, for example, that their private label credit card business has shrunk a bunch and they had to take more mm-hmm. reserves for potential mm-hmm. losses. So there's there's definitely some shakiness that is starting to appear, but I I envision something much more serious starting to happen by now, and it's, it's not. And whether it will uh, six months from now, it wouldn't surprise me. But anyway, mm-hmm. as far as the uh, – unless it happens mm-hmm. in the, <laughs> the time between this episode coming out and December 31st, I would Hard say to I got yeah. to stick with the C-. minus. All right. Next up, strong corporate balance sheets reign supreme. Uh, This is a bit of a technical prediction, but uh, unpack it a little bit for the folks and then give yourself a grade. Well, this was sort of this idea that uh, the strong will get stronger and the weak will get weaker. So we talked about with part one where we've seen some of the weaker um, disruptor companies either getting into trouble or needing to run into the hands of an acquirer or recapitalizing, delaying interest payments, those those kinds of things. So those with weak balance sheets have definitely been the ones that have had to refinance or get some sort of bailout in terms of somebody acquiring them or partnering with them. We've seen bankruptcies, obviously, and you know, Bed Bath & Beyond liquidating, et cetera, that sort of stuff. But on the flip side about the strong getting stronger, those with the strong balance sheets like the Walmarts, like the tractor supplies, like even RH, even though their operating performance is weak, they are investing mightily. I mean, we saw you know multi-billion dollar investments from Walmart 
in their stores. We've seen, you know, we can name dozens of retailers uh, everywhere from the dollar stores to Ollie's Bargain Bin to Five Below that have strong balance sheets and are opening dozens, if not hundreds, of stores. So we're seeing this, I hate to say bifurcation, but, you know, we're seeing this real real polarization in terms of the weak companies really needing to pull back more significantly than they did last year. And I would say, for the most part, the strong companies stepping on the gas Mm. uh, this past year more so than they did for the last couple of years. So I would say overall, I I think I did pretty well on this one. I believe I gave myself uh, an A-. minus. I mean, it's a little hard to like really grade this mm-hmm. one because it's a bit subjective. All Even right. more subjective than some of the other ones. <laughs> yeah, like the other. A minus. All right, there we go. The next one's a bit of a gimme, I think. Anyway, the metaverse still not ready for its close up. I mean, I, it's funny. I, I when I was looking at these notes, I'm like, I, I forgot we were even talking about the metaverse. Nobody talks about it at all anymore. So. Well, yeah, I mean, now it's, I think, pretty easy to see that the metaverse is a big nothing burger, at least at this point. Uh, the beginning of the year, you know, it was still kind of rattling around as, as something. And I was just like, no, it's not going to happen. So, yeah, I think in a way it's too easy a uh, prediction. But uh, so I guess I'll you know, give myself an A plus because you know, pretty much nailed it, but, but yeah. uh, pretty easy. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess there is uh, – I mean, and there's a segment where it works. We've talked to uh, – who was it? We talked to Bree from um, – on where they had success so it's not sure. a no there's it's not a, it's, it's not a nothing but it was built up to be the next thing right and and it's just not the next thing it's just a thing but that being said it'll be interesting to see what happens with the uh, the new apple headset that uh, i've never actually seen tim cook put on because everybody looks ridiculous wearing it um but you know they'll they'll stir up some noise and and build some interest at least at the high end of the market right because it's going to be big, right big so you'll notice i think mm. you heard pretty much nothing about it yeah. Since it got announced, and I believe its mm. release date is a month from now. Yeah, that's unusual. <laughs> so, <that's, laughs> that might be a prediction. Uh, I may be um, giving a little spoiler on a prediction that perhaps will be in my twenty twenty four predictions. But more on that in twenty twenty four. All right, moving on. Artificial intelligence, uh, on the other hand, uh, has been. Um, you know, we've talked about it for a while, and it may be. Who knows? Maybe it's under sold what do you think of it and, and you know it's i guess kind of compared to the metaverse but still you know make some sense for a survey i in retail well again i think you know when i put these predictions together in early january it wasn't so obvious how uh much news and you know starting to actually see significant application of generative ai how much that was going to manifest and so i think it's absolutely manifested in a, in a big way and mm-hmm. continues to gain momentum. So I would give myself an A. I think, again, it was, it was pretty easy to say, yeah, metaverse, not so much. AI, yes, please. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, we're still in early days. We'll probably get into kind of the peak of inflated expectations at some point next year. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. no, I think this was, uh, this was kind of a, a layup. All right. Uh, now, you did, uh, being a good retailer, because we like to offer a lot of value, you did some bonus uh, that was our dozen. And you did some bonus long shot predictions. So that was our 12. That was your 12. We've graded the 12. Uh, let's move on to the three bonus slash long shot predictions. Um, you had predicted that Nike buys Peloton, which I thought was a, a, made sense to me. What, uh, what's your assessment of what didn't happen there? Well, spoiler alert, I got all three of these wrong. <laughs> this uh, This one... I guess I could say if I'm charitable, I sort of kind of got right. 
in that, I believe that Peloton was going to go find a partner. Mm-hmm. It turned mm-hmm. out that partner was Lululemon, yeah, not Nike. And Lululemon did not acquire them, but they formed a strategic alliance. So I there was an inkling. Lulu learned their lesson with Mirror, I think. That, <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, <laughs> yes. Take a little yeah. bit more risk-averse approach, less cash-intensive approach to this. So, mm-hmm. um, no, I felt that you know Peloton has a lot of value inherently, but a mess of a business model and a weak balance, you know, another example of a company with a weak balance sheet, yep. that they would be better by forging an alliance with a well-known brand that has a retail perspective. And so, it, yeah, it turned out to be Lululemon, not Nike. Now, Nike is opening their own fitness studios. So mm-hmm. they are moving towards taking Peloton on directly. So mm-hmm. I thought they might decide to kind of buy versus build. Yeah, yeah. But they didn't. And I think, you know, given the tie-up with Lululemon, that's mm-hmm. not likely to happen. So I got this sort of kind of right, but... Yeah. Now, do you take away... With Lululemon and Mirror, could it have been from a strategy perspective? You say, "Listen, we're Lululemon. Anything we invest in, we can pull it to success." In other words, you know, we're going to be really co-branded. We're going to own Mirror, and because everybody loves Lululemon, they're going to love Mirror. Do you think that? Do you think that's a faulty logic that um, that I think Nike saw through? Do you do you, do you buy that line of thinking? Well, I think Mirror was just a comparatively weak product. Um, you know, didn't have nearly the market potential, um, that, you know, lots of people saw mm-hmm. and presumably Lululemon. So I mean, I, I'm sure there was some arrogance, um, on their mm-hmm. part that, mm-hmm. you know, we can take something that's maybe kind of mediocre and, and use our power yeah. to, to yeah, make yeah. it bigger. And, you know, that's, that's turned out to be wrong, obviously. And I think it was just fundamentally that this just was not a big enough idea relative to what they mm-hmm. hoped it were going to be. I think right. Peloton is, you know, operates at, you know, 10x the level in terms of brand equity and appeal and yeah, yeah, install sure. base and sure. all that kind of stuff. So I think it's just, you know, similar, certainly, but mm-hmm. I think it's really, really different. And, you know, doing it as a strategic partnership as opposed to an acquisition, you know, it's just got some, yep. some different dynamics. Uh, number two is wholesale changes at Whole Foods. Now, we had uh, heard from the stage, I think it was at Shop Talk, the new uh, new CEO, Chit and Chat. And typically when a new CEO comes in, uh, you know, changes are afoot. We know Amazon is not a, a slacker in terms of trying to change things up. Um, certainly in their grocery category, they've not been wildly successful. What uh, what did you assess of where we're at now with, with Whole Foods, knowing what we now know? I think in retrospect, it was pretty unlikely that a new leader was going to make really bold changes during this time frame. Like there's not enough time for that to be evaluated and piloted and, and rolled out. So in retrospect, this was probably a prediction I should have delayed hmm. until next year. The other thing I thought was possible really in the context of what we were talking about in part one with the Amazon changes in the flywheel, I thought it's possible that Amazon might, might bail on whole foods yeah. that they would say that, you know, it's just not material. It's not strategic. A lot of what, you know, even to the extent that Amazon continues to invest in grocery, which they appear to be doing, that they don't really need Whole Foods and mm-hmm. they can spin it, spin it out. So obviously, again, unless that mm-hmm. happens in the next week or so, uh, yeah. which is probably pretty unlikely they're going to announce a deal during Christmas week, um, mm-hmm. you know, that, that hasn't happened. I do think that Whole Foods is a very mediocre performer. 
mm-hmm. and they need some some changes. I think I've mentioned on air they compete here in North Texas with Central Market, which mm-hmm. is a very, in some respects, a very similar concept. Those stores are much much busier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Than the Whole Foods stores, and that's because it's a better it's a better mousetrap. So I think I hear a uh, lot of in Texas and in folks I know they I hear them talk about H E B all the time. I never hear right. them talk about Whole Foods. Um, no. Whole, Whole Foods performance, at least in North Texas, I don't know about the rest of, mm-hmm. of Texas, is got to be pretty lackluster. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can't be anywhere close to the performance of of H E B main stores or Central yeah, Market, yeah. which is a division of H E B. You know, I, I I still do reflect back to when that initial deal was announced that Amazon was going to buy uh, Whole Foods and grocers lost billions of market value because oh no, Amazon's now in grocery. Dun 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 dun. It's like you, you, it's like playing the soundtrack from Star Wars when Darth Vader comes into the room, and it just did not pan out that way, which I expected. I I didn't get it myself, but anyway, who knows these things? But I I don't make predictions. You do. I just never. <laughs> Probably um, one of the smarter things that you've decided. <laughs> Stand back. Coles and J.C. Penny to merge. There's been no shortage of news around Coles, leadership changes, strategy changes. A little bit less, of course, of a J.C. Penny not being publicly traded. But um, I, these things, I'm not hearing about. It could happen. What do you think? Well, the thing. I mean, again, this was probably something given the what's going on at J.C. Penny. That was not likely. I mean, all of these three are meant to be things that are mm-hmm. kind of out there predictions. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it yeah. wasn't as yep. if I thought there was greater than a 50% chance of happening. Sure. But, uh, and it's probably unlikely that the owners of JCPenney, which are really these two mall operators, were likely to, in essence, give up so soon. But things are not going well at JCPenney. <laughs> so mm. and things are not going well at Kohl's. And what I would say, and I know I've said versions of this before, Part of the issue in the moderate price department store type space is there's just way, way too much capacity. Yeah. There's, there's, it's sort of like we used to talk about the airline industry was like until you took some capacity out, nobody had a chance of making any money. Hmm. And I would say there's easily, I mean, I think actually the real answer is there's like twice as much as there needs to be for the long term. Wow. But I can comfortably say there's at least 30%. So, you know, if you continue to see the decline in department stores, you know, we just talked about it at the top, mm-hmm. that sales are down 5 or 6%. But, it, you know, it's been a long-term decline. Yeah. A little bit of that are the economic headwinds. Mm. But most of it is the irrelevance of the business model. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a contracting uh, sector, I guess. And then you've got, you know, Macy's, Kohl's, JCPenney, Belk, Dillard's, blah, blah, blah all going after very similar customers. And if the pie is shrinking and the share and the performance on the part of all the players is below average, something has to give. So my thought was that, you know, a combination of two of the department store players would allow some cost savings, but mostly it would allow for hundreds of stores to be rationalized and for the productivity of each store to then go up where somebody could make money. It's a very complicated argument to make yeah. uh, for, uh, you know, and there's lots of issues in terms of actually happening, but I think, you know, either we're going to have these department stores bump along until one of them goes out. Mm-hmm. Um, the most obvious candidate is pennies, but even then, you know, 
that's not going to make the department store sector fundamentally vibrant. Even more capacity has to come out. So it's not, yeah. and you know, we talked about the, what might happen if, if Macy's gets acquired by real estate guys. Yep. So anyway, we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's, it is hard to put our merger together, but the headline is a lot of capacity needs to come out mm. or uh, every one of the players is just going to get closer to the brink over the next few years. Well, it's interesting because why that merger didn't happen, uh, of course, in the new Saxon, Neiman Marcus merger has been kicked around and, and kicked around in the public domain. Do you, do you see that in the same vein, uh, of course, the different snack bracket that, uh, that would take capacity out and, and make some room for those two brands? Well, that's part of the issue. It's not nearly as extreme as, as the moderate department store, but you basically have you know, a market that, that kind of demands like 1.4 luxury department stores, and it has two. And if you go around city by city, I've done this analysis both when I was at Neiman Marcus, but also for a client I had uh, that was related to a possible merger. I'm not going to name who it is, <laughs> but uh, but let's just say we did some of the math on this. And I think mm-hmm. it's pretty clear, particularly as you see, I mean, we have a little bit of the luxury market struggling right now. I mean, that's not always going to be the case. We'll, we'll see a rebound, I think, in yeah, the next yeah. year. But you're seeing more competition from the brands, uh, you know, the LVMHs of the world opening their own stores. And so that sector of multi-line department store is going to continue to contract and then you have in many cities and sometimes in the very same malls, you've got a Saks and a Neiman Marcus going after essentially the same customer being essentially the same value proposition. So I can name 15 malls where, where Neiman Marcus and Saks yeah. are in. So yeah. if one of them were to close, the economics of the remaining store would be way bigger or you know, way better. Mm-hmm. So the question is whether you can make that like the math is pretty compelling I and mean, it's not a very exciting story to talk about closing down and there's complexities depending on the leases and all that kind of stuff. But there's a good economic rationale to do it if you believe that the multi-line luxury department store is not a growth vehicle. Spoiler alert, it's not. Yeah, Whether yeah. you know it can be pulled off or not also gets back to a lot of complexities. Well, it is a, uh, a riddle packed in a, what do they say? What's that old thing? A riddle packed in a, anyway, a question mark that's surrounded by a, whatever, a conundrum or something. Anyway, I'm just making that up. Um, the other conundrum is Sears opening stores. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> it's just like, what? I thought they were dead. Uh, Brought to you anyway. by the producers of Weekend at Bernie's, dragging around the corpse. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a wrap on uh, part two of uh, the predictions evaluations episode for 2023. We're almost at the finish line for 2023. One episode left, as you said, uh, with uh, the uh, global, much respect, global chief economist for Deloitte, uh, Ira Kalish, uh, who will be joining us and taking us into uh, next year. We've been renewed, as we said, for season eight. So we got lots of exciting stuff going on that we'll talk about next week. But until then, let's leave it there. If you like what you heard, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, your favorite podcast platform, so you can catch up with all our great interviews, including Anish Melwani, chairman and CEO of LVMH North America. New episodes of Season 7 will show up each and every Tuesday. Be sure and tell your friends and colleagues in the retail industry all about us. And I'm Steve Dennis, author of the best-selling book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, and the forthcoming Leader's Leap, Transforming Your Company at the Speed of Disruption, which will be published in March 2024 and is now available for pre-order at book retailers everywhere. You can learn more about me, my consulting, and keynote speaking at stephenpdennis.com. 
And I'm Michael LeBlanc, consumer retail growth consultant, keynote speaker, and producer for host a series of retail trade podcasts, including this one. You can learn even more about me on LinkedIn. Safe travels, everyone. <laughs>